0: Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now.
1: Welcome to Retail Therapy a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine a retailer facing a huge challenge and provide actionable steps to revive, revitalize or rebrand them back from oblivion. This week, we'll be looking at an e-commerce giant that worked its way up the ranks to become one of the largest furniture and home goods retailers on the planet, netting billions of dollars of revenue during the 2010s. But despite its success, the company has yet to see a profitable quarter since 2020 and as a result has laid off more than 1,000 of its employees. Have we reached a tipping point or can this retailer turn things around in 2023? Yes, today we're talking about Wayfair. Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists Venki Shankar and Guy Cortant. Venki is Ford Chair Professor of Marketing and E-Commerce and Director of Research at the Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. He works with several retailers and has conducted extensive research on e-commerce and omnichannel retailing. He has analysed the business models and tracking progress of several retailers, including Wayfair. And Guy has over 20 years of experience in the supply chain and retail space. Geese started his journey at Forrester Research during the dot-com boom days and has been entrenched in the space ever since. He has covered the space both as an executive at technology providers, as well as time spent as an industry analyst. And being a Bostonian, Wayfair has a special place in his heart. Before we dive into today's therapy session, let's first begin by learning a little bit more about our patients' history and what got them here today. It all started in 2002 when Niraj Shah and Steve Conin launched Wayfair with a makeshift headquarters in Boston. A year later, they relocated to a larger office and started expanding their inventory, adding patio and garden goods suppliers and more online stores. By 2006, the company earned $100 million in sales and was ranked as the fastest growing private e-commerce company in Massachusetts. Over the next couple of years, Wayfair continued to expand its offerings, adding home decor, furniture and materials for the office, kitchen and dining, home improvement goods, bed and bath materials, luggage and lighting to their catalogue. In 2013, Wayfair acquired Dwell Studio, a New York City-based design house and retailer focused on modern home and family furnishings. But with success came some challenges. In 2017, Wayfair reported spend more than $500 million in advertising and faced a lawsuit from South Dakota over state sales tax. The case, titled South Dakota versus Wayfair Inc., eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court and determined that states have the right to impose taxes on products bought from vendors outside of the state, even if the seller lacks a physical presence in the state imposing the tax. Wayfair continued to grow, adding jobs and opening up its first permanent storefront in the Natick Mall in Massachusetts. But in early 2020, the company announced a layoff of 550 employees, or about a third of their global workforce. As of 2020, Wayfair has yet to show a profitable quarter. And on August the 19th, 2022, Shah wrote a letter addressed to Wayfair's employees informing them, around 900 job positions were going to be terminated. Let's start off by discussing some of the factors that have led to Wayfair's current condition. What's your take on the current perception of Wayfair today? I wanted to start off looking at the company's history and start by asking you, Venki, you know, how did they grow so quickly and take advantage of the e-commerce boom?
0: Thank you, Ian. Pleasure to be here. As you rightly observed earlier on, Wayfair started way back in 2002, right? And at that time, it was the CNS stores and then the founders, Mirav and Conan, they cobbled together a number of sites and started launching the Wayfair that we know only by 2011, 2020, 2012. And uh, essentially what they learned during the dot-com pandemic, you know, they had earlier avatars in different businesses before the, the dot-com boom. And they learned is that in order to be the go-to e-commerce player like Amazon is in entire retailing, they wanted to be that player for home furnishings and home goods, you have to have scale. And so I think that's the realization that made them join all the sites together. And once you have the scale, you have to really go for high investments in supply chain and in, in also customer acquisition. And then, uh, you know... It, E-commerce is a beast, right? So you have to feed it by advertising. So uh, they had to embark on huge advertising and then try and generate as much as revenue as possible, hoping that, you know, they will eventually make profits. And they were just looking at Amazon, which is investing in growth. And so they, they basically got the demand side and the supply side going. But what was elusive was the profitability. And as you rightly said Ian earlier on, uh, it was only that pandemic qu- quarter or year that really gave them the profitability and uh, the e-commerce business is a very tough business right it's a low margin business and volumes are great if you make positive margins if you make negative margins it's terrible right and that's what happened for Wayfair so they in a way you can say that they lost their way uh, trying to go after the gold that they urgently sought to go after.
1: Fair enough. That makes sense. And Guy, what, what are your thoughts on on their growth and how they were looking at developing and capitalizing on e-commerce?
2: Yeah, no, and Ian, yeah, thanks so much for having me on this. And and I to reiterate what Vicky said, I think he's spot on. You know, when I look at Wayfair, I think it's uh, you know, first of all, I think it's a really interesting example of of, you know, a lot of what I saw back in the days when I was a forester and a lot of the dot-com startups back then, a fantastic idea by some founders. To leverage this digital platform called the internet to go and connect with consumers and to sell almost unlimited products right because you know with ones and zeros i can show you any products any price any color any shape any size the challenge becomes now when a customer clicks that buy button is oh i now have to ship it to you and i have to get it to you in a timely and profitable way so that a i protect my margin i make you the customer satisfied uh, and I don't lose my shirt. And I think at the beginning to Venky's point, you know, they did a a fantastic job sort of getting that front end side, you know, up and running and and I believe to credit to them tackling a really hard e-commerce issue which is furniture. If we look at our friend Mr. Bezos, he started by selling books and CDs. Why? Because well, they kind of fit into a nice little box. I can ship them on, yeah. you know, I can ship them easily. It's not very expensive. I don't need massive infrastructure to ship books and CDs. Well, you know, now we're tackling furniture. And as we know, furniture goes from massive couches to tables to small items, right? It it runs the gamut. So I think, you know, from that perspective, they tackled a need, which was people were very much wanted to go online to to buy and to look at furniture. They were able to provide a massive amount of inventory with regards to what I could get access to. You know, by some accounts, I think I looked, it's what five thousand brands, over twenty thousand suppliers you know on Wayfair today. So in the beginning, I think that that really pushed their growth. But to Becky's point, I think what happened is all of a sudden they realized, wow, this movement, the movement of the goods, the supply chain side, the fulfillment side, is hyper challenging. And it's challenging for e-commerce in general. Now throw in the form factor of furniture, and that's really, you know doubling down on the challenge. So I think that's where we, we are today. But absolutely, in the beginning, I think they, they caught on to uh, the e-commerce wave, the need for people that wanted you know furniture bought that way uh, and sort of break the traditional logjam of furniture, which was, well, go to a stodgy showroom, look at a couch, maybe buy it, still have shipping issues, right? Only have two or three options. Now you had unlimited options. So I think from that perspective, you know, a really interesting
1: case study in the rise of Wayfair. Definitely. I agree. It's interesting to see how IKEA are starting to shift their offer a bit, even through their physical stores. For example, here in the UK, right in the centre of London, they're opening a massive store, which cannot offer the turn with your car and load into the back sort of offer. And they're going to be facing the same challenges. So I agree that the delivery of furniture is a huge challenge and the speed at which expectations are raising for customers as well now with fast commerce. Now, it is interesting that they They sort of, their their financial issues started really hit around 2019, 2020, and we all know what happened in 2020. Thank you. Do you you feel that there was just a critical mass point for them in business, or was COVID a tipping point? Because obviously we all went online when COVID hit. I mean, what are your thoughts around this sort of financial decline that seemed to hit around that, that time?
0: Very good observation, Ian. I think they capitalized on the COVID phenomenon in the sense, you know, COVID, everybody was locked indoors and we had to order a lot of things and people started doing home improvements and furnishings and so on. So they caught a bit of the tailwind in the boom. I don't think as these spot on in, in terms of they completely underestimated the challenges for products like furniture and and their model was drop shipping, which means they never took inventory and they let the suppliers directly fulfill. The orders. And, uh, and you know, with the drop shipping model, you have to be so careful to make sure that uh, all of them execute very well because you don't have control over the customer experience. And, and um, consistently so as content. well. Consistently, yep. absolutely. And uh, I've looked at research by researchers looking at their customer acquisition and profitability model. And Ian, one of the things that was problematic right from day one and all the way till 2019 was that they were paying about $70 to acquire a customer and still losing money on them. They were losing about $10 per customer on an average. And the way the retailers make money in e-commerce these days, whether it's furniture or others, is that you have to have some other related business model. You know, even if you look at Amazon now, retail is not their biggest profit generator, right? If you look at AWS is one, The marketplace is another ad network. Mm -hmm. It's a huge growing uh, part of their business model. And unfortunately, you know, if you're focused on just this one category and you want to be a category killer on furniture, uh, hats off to them for trying this. But you have to have a kind of go-to option financially saying that in case I am unable to make money on just the transactions, uh, are there any related Things. For example, the ad network, which they are doing right now, but it's a very small portion of their financial uh, revenue stream. And what really needed to happen was that they had the tipping point in terms of using that pandemic demand and then trying to hold on to the customer. And what they couldn't do is they couldn't hold on to the customers, right? Now, you know, we know now that they lost about 5 million customers out of 33 million or so. Because they couldn't hold on, and it's very important to hold on and sell them other things and maybe expand their network and continue to remain profitable. Because you know, drop shipping model is always vulnerable. Now they are doing the wholesale model, also in addition to drop shipping. But these are all maneuvers or measures that are they're doing basically to come out of this uh, deep hole that they've dug themselves into in financially.
1: Rising customer expectations combined with the demands for clear returns on investment make smart deployment of AI-driven technologies an imperative for every contact center and customer experience leader. Retail brands are looking to meet customer and agent expectations today while staying ahead of their competition in the future must seek solutions that allow them to innovate quickly while also delivering long-term value. That is where nuance comes in. Whether you need a virtual assistant that predicts what shoppers want before they ask, proven fraud prevention solutions, or efficient agents who boost your conversion rate and increase your sales size, Nuance AI for retail solutions can help. Visit them at nuance.com forward slash retail. And what are your thoughts in this sort of area as well, Guy, particularly, you know, the, the impact of the decline here and maybe how they reacted to the COVID opportunity and threats?
2: Yeah. And again, to, to reiterate what Vanky was saying, I mean, it was interesting because obviously there was a, a bit of a pop, right? We were all stuck at home during the pandemic. We all heard the stories of, you know, when you sit at your at your home desk and you look around and that couch that you're like, you know, I'm going to replace it in a couple of years. And all of a sudden now you see it every day it sort of motivates you to, to go and replace it. And let's call a spade a spade. We had a lot more time on our hand. We weren't commuting. Those of us that travel a lot, were no longer on planes. So then we start taking on these whole projects that had been on the back burner. So a Wayfair gets a certain boost to that. And, but I think what, so to Venky's point, which I think is, is, is really at the core of this is when you think about, you know, what I'm doing in terms of selling furniture, yes, you know, I might buy a new couch or a new desk for my office uh, or some chairs, but that's not something i'm buying you know every six months every two months i'm not replenishing that on a regular basis right it's not a, a perishable item where okay i need to replace my dog food every you know two months because my dog is eating it all so for a wayfair becomes a challenge because you know to the point that making made, like well what else am i selling you right so if ian comes in and buys a new desk chair and a new desk during the pandemic and then maybe switches out your coffee table all right, well, what's next, right? What do I sell you next? And I think that's the challenge for Wayfair. And then another great point is, what is my other revenue stream, right? Because selling furniture is, is one thing. What's my other revenue stream on top of that? Are, are there services I can include, things of that nature? And I think what was interesting just before the pandemic and really during the pandemic is when I look at Wayfair and you know they tried to start and they still are trying to offer some of their fulfillment knowledge To the market, right? With this castle gate, and what does that look like? It's interesting because what I've seen is, and I think the industry has seen this over the past couple of years, right? Like American Eagle went out and bought Quiet Logistics. Gap is now trying to offer their own backbone for logistics for other players. Walmart is doing the same. Obviously, we know Amazon does that. So I think it was an interesting play for Wayfair. I question if it's potentially too little, too late. I question if it's, you know, okay, this is this is a good move. Are you investing enough in this secondary revenue stream to really, A, bolster your own logistics, but also potentially provide that service to other players where you can now, you know, make another, some more revenue based on the infrastructure you've already invested in. So I think that's something that's interesting post-pandemic to see how does that continue to evolve? You know, is it too late? Is there still opportunity there? We can get to that a little bit later, but I think that's an interesting way to look at it because to make point you're going to need multiple revenue streams and let's face it you know a- aws from amazon is a massive cash cow that lets that gives them so much flexibility in terms of other things they do because they know that every quarter they have this massive check for lack of a better term that comes in to, to refill their coffers
1: yeah i mean do you, do you feel the data that they can gather has value because like you say people like amazon and walmart can leverage their logistics but uh, Wayfair outsource that, you know, to their suppliers. So do you see things like this sort of data insight? And would it be a scale of data that would be of any interest to, to other people?
2: I mean, I look at it at it, that point. Yeah. I mean, data, right? Data is massive. Data is, I hate to use the cliche that data is the new oil. But, you know, that yeah. that oil is useless until I refine it. So the data that yeah. Wayfair is collecting, I think, could be extremely valuable from the perspective of obviously trends and desires and needs for furniture and, and home goods. Uh, and obviously that's a massive market out there. The question is, you know, how do they harness it? How do they monetize it? To Venky's point too, because there's a little bit of a separation where they're again leveraging their suppliers to drop ship items. Do they really have as much insight as they possibly could if they controlled that part of the business as well? So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, I think they, the short answer is yes. To me, the long answer is, this going to,
1: quote, quote, save them? I don't think so. Fair enough. Do you have any other thoughts you want to add on that, Pinky?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with Guy on that. The challenge today is that everybody and their brother has data. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Now, we have to harness this data and what uh, Guy called the refining the oil. And what it means is you have to provide value, customized, personalized value and that comes through not just by selling your extra piece of furniture or furnishing item, but it is about giving the experience. You know, it could be a service, it could be a bundle, it could be in an installation, it could be. And I know that uh, you know Wayfair has tried to partner with Handy to to do some of these installations and so on. But most of the money goes to Handy, and they take in only a small fraction, and so we need to really own the customer experience for Wayfair to really make a big difference, and because of a lack of control over the entire value chain, they're unable to do that, and also they need to mine the data and and come up with new offers and new ways of doing business, maybe look at partnerships that extend beyond furnishing, because being a category killer and trying to make money in e-commerce through scale has proved elusive to a lot of people and the only way to do it is that you have to be 360 degree customer centric these days.
1: Yes, I suppose it's a double-edged sword. You know, you reduce the cost by outsourcing the logistics, but you don't, as you say, then control the whole customer experience. They're at the mercy of all of those different suppliers, how effective they are in responding, uh, the staff they hire, those sort of touch points at delivery and things like that as well. So, uh, I want to just sort of look at some of the behind-the-scenes areas here. I was sort of interested in your take on on things like the warehousing. We've, we've touched on some of the supply chain, but any of further issues they may have around supply chain and logistics as well that that are the behind-the-scenes delivery mechanisms once once they engage a customer.
2: Yeah, and and I think that's at, at the root of a lot of, in my opinion, some of their issues is is that behind the scenes. I remember working with Wayfair before the pandemic and one of the big challenges that we were working on with them is is visibility in terms of inventory coming in from the Far East. I mean, honestly, they they would tell me that they would get TEUs coming into the port of Long Beach, and then they had no idea where they'd end up until someone called them and said, oh, the TEU just showed up in Des Moines. So that very fundamental aspect of being able to track and trace all your inventory coming in from the Far East, or anywhere for that matter, uh, is, is key, right? Because at the end of the day, We're not moving, you know, joking aside, we're not moving books and CDs here. We're moving big, bulky items, which carry a very high cost in terms of handling, in terms of movement, in terms of storage. So to me, you know, that was one of the fundamental things when I looked at it that was troubling in a way, because, you know, if you can't get that right, if you can't at least have basic visibility into where your items are at all times... How can you then fulfill an order in a profitable and timely fashion? Because then you're always playing catch up, right? Venky's just ordered a couch. I know it's in my system, but I don't know where it is. So once I figure out where it is, all of a sudden I realize, well, you know, he's down in Texas, and the couch just ended up in South Dakota, and now I have to rush rush it on a truck down there. That's going to cost me a lot of money. Or, you know, there's a couch that ended up in Texas that I could have, you know, allocated to Venky, but I didn't have visibility. It was too late, right? So these basic supply chain practices, which are fundamental in any business, but especially in a big, bulky business like furniture, you really see is going to take a big hit on your margins and your cost. So I think, from that perspective, that's something that you know, for Wayfair, I think it should be a priority when it comes to some of their warehousing. I think, from what I've seen, they've got about a dozen. DCs running around. There's always a need for more distribution centers, in my opinion, for a business like this. The question then becomes, well, where do I place my inventory, right? And that's always the challenge. And especially again mm-hmm. in this business, because if I misplace my inventory, the cost of repositioning it is going to be incredibly high. So I better get that yeah. first placement right, because again, this is not like you know, if I misplace the the latest white shirt from Hugo Boss somewhere. Yeah, I can move it pretty quickly and easily. If I misplace that latest dining sets, you know, with eight chairs and a heavy table, yeah, that's a little bit more expensive. So for me, you know, to your pointing, and I think when I look at their supply chain, as much as they strive to be air quotes here, like an Amazon, uh, there's still a lot of improvement that can be done from that side to get them to a point where they can have a smooth supply chain to sustain all the good things you're doing on the front end.
1: Yeah, and I suppose also, you know, coming back to your books and CDs analogy, if, if you're spending a couple of thousand dollars on a big piece of furniture and it goes missing, yeah. you have a greater degree of dissatisfaction from the customer than if you just mislaid a CD. I mean, misleading anything's annoying. But these sort of one, once every five year purchase items, we tend to place a little bit
2: more emphasis and focus as a customer. Exactly. Exactly. When your wife has spent three months researching the latest dining table and they find she finds it, she orders it. And now it's, oh, it's supposed to be there next week. And then next week comes like, yeah, we don't know where it is, but just be patient with us. Um, guess
1: who gets the wrath on that one? <laughs> Do you have anything else you, you'd like to add about things like the, the logistics and supply chain banking?
0: Yeah, I think has pointed out the key challenges that in a product category like furnitures and heavy bulky items, that any retailer, let alone Wayfair, faces. And what has happened also, the competition has also caught up. If you look at the traditional low value or low cost alternatives, I you know IKEA is, is, of course, the leading one. But they also are moving, many of them are moving to online ordering, Walmart, Target. Don't forget these companies. They're also, you know, big challenges to wayfares And so your business model, all of a sudden, which is completely new, you know, making furniture really possible through online, is no longer new. You know, people want omni-channel shopping right now. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a value after post-pandemic for people to go into the stores and kick a few furniture and jump on them and see how comfortable they feel. So even they are fighting that, too, because they don't have that option in this omni-channel world. Uh, And uh, consequently, what ends up, you know, it's related to supply chain, but amazingly, they have to end up advertising a lot. Because, you know, people cannot touch and feel that place. They have to only experience it visually. And so they're spending all over $1 $1 billion in advertising and that's huge, uh, yeah. especially when you're struggling to make a positive margin on every customer. All of a sudden this business looks very tough to pull it off and you have to be super efficient in the supply chain and logistics to pull it off, despite all the challenges that you heard from you.
1: In today's highly competitive retail landscape, personalization has become a key revenue driver. Almost three quarters of consumers now expect personalized interactions and more than three quarters are frustrated when this doesn't happen. Retailers need to deliver more robust sensory experience and personalized customer service and evolve with personalization, seamless purchasing and intelligent store experiences. Beyond just personalizing the shopper experience, elevating the shopper experience relies on smarter, more connected stores, unified commerce across diverse channels, smart advertising solutions, and seamless customer service. Microsoft Cloud for Retail can help you to evolve and elevate the shopping experience. Well, certainly, I I was actually just about to ask about sort of physical showrooming opportunities, because here in the UK, we had a much smaller version of Wayfair called Made.com, had the same business model, but they opened physical showrooms in major cities like London and Birmingham and Manchester. Now, unfortunately, they've just gone into administration, but but it was interesting because those showrooms were quite well attended. Do you think that's something that would help Wayfair, or is it just their business model just doesn't suit, including these sort of physical showrooms, because you can't get the scale of coverage you might want? That's interesting, Ian, because it's the big $10 billion question for
2: e-com players, right? The purebred guys who came in. And, you know, we've seen Amazon open up stores, closed stores. Obviously, they bought Whole Foods, so that instantaneously gave them a massive physical presence out there to do different things, right, to obviously sell groceries, but to do things such as handle returns, things of that nature. And you mentioned, you know, the beginning, and you talked about IKEA opening a store in, in London. And yes, you know what, it's a challenge to buy a piece of furniture in an IKEA store in the middle of a big city like London and pull your car up and try to load it up. Having said that, what I think is really interesting about that model is maybe, to your point, it just becomes a big showroom. And Ikea knows, hey, I've got a yeah. massive store outside of London or a massive DC. So if Ian comes in and buys a new table, I can have it fulfilled from that DC that's you know 10 kilometers outside the city, and I don't need to have you loaded up into your car. Having said that, yeah. obviously, opening up those physical locations is a massive capital investment. And Wayfair, I know here in, in Massachusetts, right, Try that. In the Natick Mall, they opened a small format store. Uh, they'd sold basic smaller pieces of furniture, right, beds and some small tables and a lot of accessories. And it got a pop, right, where people all of a sudden it was new. People knew Wayfair. They came in. They looked at it. I don't know the numbers in terms of what kind of volumes transactions, probably not very high. And then all of a sudden they closed it. So my sense is, you know, Wayfair either needs to go all in on this and and in terms of opening up stores to understand that we're going to drive foot traffic, we're going to do showrooming with it, the store footprint itself might be a net loss in terms of sales, but can it have a knock-on effect by selling more furniture we can now fulfill, you know, those orders online? And it's almost like the showroom concept is, I'm not going in there to buy something, I'm going in there to see it and then to buy it online and you'll fulfill it through a DC network. So I do think- It's like like physical physical homepage. It's exactly, it's common. a physical homepage. It's spot on where I come in and I can, and to your point too, you know, furniture, one of the challenges about furniture is at some point I kind of want to sit on it or I want to see how that cushion feels or sit at the table. And a lot of them are doing a good job, you know, with with some augmented reality where, yeah, I can take a picture of my phone and see it in my room virtually, but nothing beats actually going in and, and you know, trying the furniture for lack of a better term. But the challenge is, that is massive investment from a capital perspective. And as Vicky pointed out, right, they're burning through cash. And to then tell them now, hey, you know all that cash you burn through? Burn through some more to try to build some physical stores to help drive your business. And oh, by the way, there's no guarantee it's gonna work, but it's something to think about.
1: Yes, and, and when you have such a vast sort of range of products, you know, what, what do you physically showroom? And I know Ikea have done some small format stores. There's certainly in London, they had a, a kitchen studio version, just focusing on kitchen. But the strength of Wayfair is the vast range, and you physically can't showroom at all. I mean, what, what's your view on that? adding a physical aspect to that offer, Venki?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, more and more we see that uh, your play, e-commerce players are going omni-channel. You know, you see Warby Parker, I see Casper, all of everybody has to have, and Casper is probably closer to that because, you know, if you want to buy a mattress, you know, you have, people still want to feel it, yeah. sleep on it, literally uh, add to uh, in their decisions. And so, b- bottom line is, you know, that is inevitable for Wayfair too. It's the question is the timing, right? Can they mm-hmm. now invest in, as uh, he said, uh, can you invest now more in physical presence? They should have thought about it and and put together some stores at least. They could be experienced stores, it could be experimental stores, whatever it is. They have they should have tried it, but now they may have to do it maybe at a very small scale at a few bigger locations. But mm. you know, to give that customer experience and to really retain the customer, they're losing customers because yes. they're buying this one-off items and then they're not coming back. And I think they have to do something about. Owning the customer, retaining the customer, and, and this would help alleviate some of them. At least their bigger value customers. They have to do a CRM and, and really go after the customer that actually provide them the highest
1: margins. Exactly. So, I just want to briefly touch on the customer experience side. You know, um, at the start of the lockdown in 2020, I bought some stuff from Wayfair. I went back. I bought a wardrobe, and I went back in to look for associated furniture. And the second time I went back in, the price went up. And I was like, oh, great. This is as an algorithm, like an airline, where if you show more interest, the price goes up. I ended up going somewhere else and buying equivalent products at a cheaper price. They made me look elsewhere. So I don't know if you sort of briefly cover any personal experiences you've had as customers working with Wayfair. I don't, uh, uh, have you had any
0: experiences? Not, not me, but uh, in my town, College Station, they have the largest call center. So I have uh, interacted with some of the people there and tried to understand what kind of uh, issues customers are facing. And one of the pain points is what you said is, Ian, and this happens to a lot of retailers, not just Is that they take the customers for granted once you're acquired, and then they try to sell items at higher margins or higher price and, and forget about understanding what gives you a fulfilling customer experience. And I think yeah. that is something that they have to go back to basics. You know, I mentioned about sifting through their CRM and finding out who the most valuable customers are. Are they happy? What would make them happy? What are additional opportunities for them? Uh, how do we make sure that they don't feel per- the perception that they're being taken advantage of? And then once they defect, you know, the cost of reacquiring customers is so high in yep. any space, and in, in this space, it's, it's much higher because. Once, uh, uh bit and twice shy, most of the customers are.
1: Yeah, I agree. How about you, Guy? Have you, have you made any purchases as a, an end consumer?
2: Uh, absolutely. I've certainly been a, a fairly regular user of Wayfair. And I will say my experiences have been, I hate to say it this way, sort of expected. What I mean by that is, and to your point, Ian, you know, certainly have looked at products where all of a sudden the price jumps a bit, and I'm like, well, maybe I just maybe just start another account and, and look at it as a fresh eyes uh, and see and see what <laughs> they do. get my
1: wife to buy something exactly, <laughs>
2: exactly. And, and I get it, like, hey, the airlines do it, but part of it is the airlines know there's a there's a finite amount of routes between you know Boston and London. I, I don't have 17 different options. I can fly BA or Delta, that's or Virgin, right? That's about it. So yeah, they could they could screw around yeah. the prices, but with furniture, to Venky's point. I'm one click away from a host of other solutions and offerings for furniture. So my experience have been okay in, in the sense of, you know, the purchasing has been fairly easy. I think the delivery, which I always look at, right, is how that works. And it's been, I would say, where I expect it to be. Does that mean it's fantastic? No. Does that mean it can improve? Yes. Does that mean it's, I've had much worse from other suppliers, but that that's not necessarily good, right? If I'm a Wayfair, mm-hmm. I need to figure out, how do i make that customer experience to venki's point so so earth-shattering in a way that it's not just because of low price that i go to you it's because there's something else that gets me that attracts me that draws me that keeps me engaged with you and if i don't do that i'm one click away of going somewhere else and the reality is you know to some degree if i look at a Wayfair, it's it's sort of a, a gateway furniture right if if i I'm a young student, or I'm looking for something that's affordable, I'll go to a Wayfair. But if I look for sort of a, you know, a, a statement piece of furniture, as I as we get older, then I'm not going to go to a Wayfair, right? I might go to a Restoration Hardware or a Haverty's or, or or one of those brands. So Wayfair has to be very conscious of that, that, you know, y- you have to make sure that I'm so satisfied that I still come back to you for, for things. And yes, I'm, maybe I won't buy that big statement piece from you. But everything else, I'm going to keep coming back to you because of whether it's great customer service or great supply chain or great, great installation, whatever that may be. So I think that's the part when I look at my experience that I I focus on as well.
1: Cool. Well, we have five minutes left, guys. We just sort of move forward to the remedy really here. Um, Venky, what, what would you recommend that Wayfair does to turn around their current situation and ensure future sort of prosperity?
0: I would focus on three major things. One is uh, financial discipline. I think one of the things we didn't discuss or touch upon is that they've had to restate some financials and that hasn't gone well with investors and also the suppliers and all the stakeholders. So they have to get their financial act together. I know that they're embarking on a lot of financial cuts and so on. So that's absolutely necessary, right? Number two, they have to really focus on customized customer experience. That is providing, understanding, analyzing your customer relation management database and picking on the most valuable customers for you and then improving the experience for them. Not just buying experience, not owning experience, post-purchase experience and engaging them. And one of the things I think Wayfair has to spend more effort as the mobile app right now all the uses are done using mobile apps and one of the things with millennials and the gen z's is they have to focus on is that they really want technology assisted but comfortable customer experiences that means they have to look at the value proposition which also involves being perceived as more environment friendly and more more in tune with the uh, societal uh, purpose and missions that the younger generations are looking for. So th- that is number two, focusing a lot on what drives customer experience. And, and number three is they have to redo their entire delivery chain, where they can actually have more points of control, where they can utilize this, and then look at more revenue streams, related revenue streams. I put it in the third bucket. So this would be my three major areas that they, they should be,
2: focusing on to turn things around.
1: Thank you. And, Kate, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think Venki hit on the big ones. And I, I think those are, you know, no small challenges, each one, but taken as a whole, uh, very yeah. challenging. But I do think, for me, if I look at it, sort of to, to build off of what Venki said, I, the first one for me is do a reassessment, so to speak, of not just your customers, but your products, right? I, I mean, having that many SKUs available. And, and, you know, one of the parts of the experience that I've had with Wayfair is, you know, you, you look up like an outdoor you know, couch and you get 700 pages of stuff, right? You're never going to get through all of them. So what that tells me is that we have yeah. too many SKUs out there. So I would do a an audit of your SKUs, your suppliers, almost to Venky's point, sort of reverse it from the customer perspective. Figure out like, well, you know, are 20% of my SKUs driving 80% of my revenue? And how does that then map to those customers, right? And then th- therefore, how do I build off of that? And then from that perspective, you know, build on that customer experience. Well, if part of the 80% is this, you know, this hutch that always sells, what other products are related to that, that I can start pushing or selling or promoting to those customers because they're going to want to buy those, right? So I think that's how we extend the life of that customer relations. And I think that the other big one for me is, is, you know, go back in, focus on your supply chain. You know, Venki touched upon it upon delivery chain. I think that's spot on. I, I would expand that to your entire supply chain. I mean, I know this is this is would be challenging for a Wayfair, but you know, if you're spending 45% or a billion dollars worth on advertising, I know you still have to do that, but maybe you take a hit and you gear some of that towards your supply chain because if you can get your supply chain right, if you can get it solid, then the rest will will to some degree fall into place. So, for me, I think those are the big categories I would look at as a Wayfair.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, that comes to the end of our chat today. I'd like to thank both of you for for coming in and joining in the conversation. You're both very knowledgeable on the subject and we found it very useful. So thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. Thanks,
2: Becky. Thanks, Ian.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries
2: slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.